winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 39th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. Today, we take a trip to Shetland to talk to Tim Matthew. Born down south, Tim first came to live on Mull at Tavul, past Chiroran, on the way to the Berg Peninsula in the south of the Isle of Mull. Tim talks about the nature of life in such a remote location and how he went to school in Pennygale School under the tutelage of Mamie Brunton. We talk about his parents, where they themselves had come from, and the families moved to Queenish in the north of Mull, and then the move to their own farm over the other side of Loch at Ardriach. Our conversation goes all over the place in this episode. We go into the nature of cattle farming before the legal obligation to pasteurise milk, how culture is revealed to a young person living in a remote location, how having a quiff at one of his first student nights in Edinburgh opened up a whole world for him, his career in music and sound, and how his band, Mystery Juice, who you'll hear throughout the episode, once outsold the Beatles in Russia. We also go into detail about fiddle music, the learning of the instrument in a social context, and playing with the mull fiddlers, Cachalans, and then eat the seats. We talk about loads of characters from Mull's past and present, including Chrissy Berg, Attie McQuarrie, Hamish Johnson, and many, many more. I was delighted that I was able to get some time with Tim, as we live really quite far apart from each other. He's based in Shetland, and I'm in the northwest of Mull. We talk over Apple's FaceTime, so there's the occasional pop and crackle in the sound, for which I apologise. Don't forget to check out our website, whatwedointhewinter.com, for links to the characters and places mentioned in this episode. I'll be back at the end of the episode with a few more bits and bobs. Now, it is with great pleasure that I pass you over to Tim Matthew. Who are you? Well, my name's Tim Matthew, and I grew up mostly on Mull. I was born in Norwich. In 1970, my folks were living in Norfolk at that point. My dad was an estate manager at that point, so he's he's running an estate, Lord and Lady Man, some it was kind of estate in the Norfolk countryside, which was a bit like Gosford Park kind of thing. Oh, it's yeah. still stuck in the Edwardian area. Wow. So uh, I remember him telling me that uh, when he started working there, he was introduced to all the members of staff, you know, like the gamekeeper, you know, the the below stairs staff, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had an office in this massive house, which I vaguely remember going into. And then I think what happened is that Lord Mann died, and the estate was beginning to... I think the estate was going to his son, who wasn't as interested in it, and it wasn't what it used to be. And so yeah. Dad got offered this job managing an estate on Mull. Ah. So he said, all right, let's do it. Bit of an adventure. Wow. And it was. So So I was... So that was 1977. So I was seven. Right. And Roz was four, so we uh, headed up off up the road, and they'd, you know, they they hadn't they hadn't really done much in the way of self sufficiency or anything like that. But I think they had that kind of a, an idea that kind of a bent. You know, we had a fishing boat down there, so dad dad fished and we sold, sold prawns and things, oh, and, well. uh, not prawns, we sold shrimp, Aye. shrimp and stuff. And I think they were always slightly adventurous with yeah. you know wanting to do new things yeah. so yeah so we headed off up the road and we arrived in Tavul. Ah. so so just so uh, you know just across the loch from Benesson and that was that was pretty amazing I, I remember I went up with dad on his new boss's personal plane some point before we moved up so he had a wow a six-seat Cessna 
he had a landing strip behind his house, which was just a kind of flattish field. We flew from somewhere in England yes. in the six-seater Cessna all the way up to Mull, landed there, got shown around the farm wow. estate, and then back again. So that was pretty crazy for a six, seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, my folks took the job, and we moved into Tavul, which was a massive, damp, I think pretty mousy house with no electricity. Uh, God. And well, you know what you know what it is. It's, it was five miles down a road that was like a riverbed, you know. Yeah. Um, we we couldn't get the cars. We had a we had a Renault Four, which is <laughs> not notoriously high. Car, yes. Actually, probably not a bad car for that kind of uh, yeah that kind of terrain. But we couldn't get that to the house. We had to leave that in this quarry at the top of Bray. And obviously, there's a Land Rover that came with the came with the job. So that rattled up and down, shaking our teeth loose. Gosh. And yeah, he went from being the kind of manager of a southeast England estate, which is all flat and mostly arable, with hunting and shooting, you know. Yes. To looking after I don't know how many hundreds of hundreds of hill sheep, a bunch of cows, looking after this the deer stalking because every so often the the boss would come up with a party from south into their big house, which was in Kilfinnachan. Oh yes. And uh, and they come up on shooting trips, whatever. So. Uh, we'd have to drive up into the hills, and there was a, a Highland pony called Nippy, who was Nippy. <laughs> he was initially he was the he was what was used for hauling down the deer carcasses. But right. then eventually, we got an, an Aga cat, which Yay. is ultimate luxury. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it's a pretty different experience to what he was used to. Yeah. Um, he sheared the entire flock of sheep by hand, single handedly, the first year we were there. Oh God. Gave himself unsurprisingly tennis elbow yeah and then um i remember the next year doing what everybody does which is to get you know a bunch of other folk in to help and you go and help other folks here that's one of the one of the social highlights of my childhood was sheer in time because yeah i i don't know if it still happens on on molly it doesn't i don't think it happens up here in shetland but uh, at that point what seemed to be the case as, as i recall was that a bunch of neighbouring sheep farmers would go and help each other clipping. You'd lay on right. a few slabs of tenants. Yes. And people would drink and shear throughout the afternoon. I'd jump up and down on the on the wool bag to stamp in the fleeces. Oh brilliant. It was brilliant. Then you know there's cause there's always there's always good chat between folk, you know, yeah. lots of good teasing. Because my dad was English, he got plenty of teasing. <laughs> English en- English and a beginner, you know, so that's a kind of prime oh dear yeah. prime target for yeah. teasing. Yeah. Um Gosh. So yeah, we did uh, did that for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so where did you go to school then? In Penny Gale. In Penny Gale, wow. Yeah, so seven kids in the whole primary school, um, with uh, Mrs. Brunton as a teacher. Yeah, Mamie. Was fantastic. Yeah, she was fantastic. She was an amazing teacher. She was a really lovely person. Yeah. So yeah, we had a this five mile track took us about half an hour to get along in the morning, and we were t- so we were taken to Kilfinnachan, and then they were picked up by car, which took us and two or three other folk around to Penny Hill and then back again it probably would have been quicker to have taken a boat across the loch to us, <laughs> not as dry bit rough yeah uh, yeah and it was good and that was a really formative place for me yeah because I just was allowed to run to roam wild around the place so I'd go off up the hills with a dog or go down to the shore go out on the boat and pretty much unsupervised wow which, looking back at it as a parent now, yeah. seems really irresponsible of my folks. But 
it was yeah. I mean, that, that was definitely the making of me. I, yeah. It always kind of felt like that was the start of my childhood or something, or the start of who I am now. Yeah, and um, self-sufficiency. It's an amazing place to live at that point. And also at that point, a mile further down the road was Chrissy Burke. Oh, wow. So What was she like? So she was, uh, yeah, so she was an amazing um, bit of education. We'd go down there because we had a couple of house cows, so we'd take milk down to her. Yeah. And she'd give us bacon oh, and nice. berries. She had this amazing walled garden with red currants, white currants, black currants. Mm. And she'd uh, make carrageen pudding, and oh, wow. yeah, she was always she was always uh, spinning and knitting and um, baking and preserving. She was, and all, all the cooking was done on an open range. Yeah, black and kettle hanging above it, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we'd go along with a pail of milk for her and um, be told stories. And Gosh, that was fantastic. She was, and a- she was incredible because she was, you know, she was the guardian of the fossil tree. Essentially, so yeah. she's the kind of uh, she'd keep an eye on all, any walkers going by, yeah. note them coming back or not. Yeah. And, uh, it's difficult track, and yeah. yeah, and despite her remoteness, she was this kind of centre of gossip down there. She knew everything that happened on Mull wow. before before we certainly did anyway. And Gosh. so the, the postmistress would come down in a in a red Land Rover to deliver the mail. So she'd get a lot of gossip there. And I suppose at some point, I don't think she always had a phone, but. She definitely had a phone at some point. I've subsequently heard stories of her. And in fact, I found recordings of her in the School of Scottish Studies. Ah, fantastic. Yeah. Which is brilliant. Um, was she on her own or were the rest of the family there, the brothers now there at the time? It was just her, I think. Just her. Right. But yeah, it was, it, was only later, it was only later that I discovered what an interesting place the Burke Farm was. You know, yeah. You know, this, this test farm for the, for the ministry. Yeah. Um, I had no idea about that. Yeah. Uh, really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I I I I had heard stories about her because she worked. I think she worked in Tavool House. Right. Okay. As a member of staff. Okay. And I heard her stories of them going round to Penny Gale for dances. Yes. Yeah. Which, when you think at that at that point, you're know, the speed of transport. Yeah. That's some. Because I'm pretty sure it was like cycling or something bonkers like that. You know, it was. They didn't get a lift in a car around them no. to a dance and then back again, you know. One of the things I've heard <laughs> so some commitment. in the past is that um, one of the great things about travelling with, horse, with horses was that you could be drunk on the horse and it would still take you home. Yeah, <laughs> they know the way home. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of nice. So your your mum and dad, where were they from originally themselves? So my my maternal grandparents, my grandfather, he was uh, on the GWR. What's that? He was on the railway. So he, oh, right. Okay. So... God's wonderful railway, uh, <laughs> the Great Western Railway. So, so yeah. So both of my mum's parents were born in Swindon, right. which was uh, a massive centre of the railworks. There's like the whole GWR centre was there. I think half the town was employed on the railway. And he was the son of a widow, and uh, they were kind of penniless. And he got himself a job as an apprentice boilermaker, and then studied and studied and worked himself up into the design room and ended up at some at one point with an office in Paddington Station, you know, behind the scenes in Paddington Station. Goodness me. So he was, that was kind of heroic. Yeah. Because of his job, they moved around quite a bit. So kind of southwest England anyway was Lovely. where my mum was based until they moved to London. And so she went to school in London for a while. And my dad was, I think he was born in Kent. Mm-hmm. But then his parents quickly moved up to Norfolk. Funnily enough, both sets of grandparents were pretty itinerant. And I know my, my mum's side, my, my granny did a, a family history, which was 
brilliant. Which um, so her family goes back to Romani gypsies a couple of generations before her. Um, from wow. kind of fair folk and horse dealers and such like. So there's a lot of a lot of moving around, which continued to be the case with my folks as well. You know, they didn't they they didn't yeah, stick yeah. anywhere. And in fact, they didn't obviously didn't even stick a mull in the end. But mull was yeah. the, the longest place they'd ever stayed. Yeah. What about your dad's folks? My dad's father was an entrepreneur. He, after the Second World War, he he started up a company doing stove enameling. Um, wow, which was just just something that people did. I think you, just using, I think it might have been using leftover facilities from war effort that he managed okay. to kind of work into some kind of a business. And then I think he had a grocery shop or an iron mugger shop at one point. I think he got into local politics. Right. He certainly, I think, he did all right, but he's obviously kind of didn't have a yeah. single income stream uh, or career yes. arc. <laughs> uh, yes, that's so many and, of us. And, <laughs> and my dad's mother was uh well when she was young i think she might have been a bit of a socialite her and her her sisters were in a group called the miller sisters and they did like kind of music hall comedy singing stuff wow gosh no idea how she met him but i think she she was a social mover she definitely wanted to go up into the middle classes um, yes in yeah. fact she probably would have been happy to be in the upper classes you know and yes, uh, yeah. so with the result my dad and his brother got sent off to boarding school Every so often, when I go visit my folks, I try to get their family, get their their stories. You know, and my mum's quite yeah. quiet and reticent. My dad's happy to tell a story or two, but they were not yeah. in for, up for him being a farm labourer or a farm worker. You know, he's going to be a farm manager, or right. or better. You know, he wasn't allowed to do any yeah. manual labour. A landowner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, eventually, he ended up being, I suppose. Um, yeah, but he he got involved with the horse racing scene and stuff he worked in in um, horse stables like doing exercises and uh, and such like but right. even even though he's quite a small guy he was still too big to be a jockey <laughs> so from um from uh Tavul, way 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 in the uh, you know the, a very uh isolated part of the island yeah you came further north what was what was the decision that brought your folks north so Richard Fairbairns, well, the, the whole Fairbairns family were friends of ours down in Norfolk, which is where they were before right. they came to Mull. Ah, oh, I didn't and, know that. Um, and Richard and my dad were college pals, I think it was. So they, right. so they'd known each other since they were young, since they were young bucks. Gosh. And yes. So when they moved up, because I, th- I know that our, the, the boss down in in uh, in Tivu, uh, wasn't well. The situation, let's shall we say, wasn't ideal. It was. Okay. It's pretty. The whole thing was pretty tough. And his, yeah, it was one person pretty much doing the job of what should be a team, I guess. A workforce. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think Dad wanted to do more for himself rather than to work for somebody else. And so, I presume the way it was, the way it came about was Richard said, "Why don't you come up here?" Or maybe Dad said to Richard, "Why don't we come up there?" Anyway, that they, they kind of struck a deal whereby we got to live in Farham Square. And we oh, got yeah. to, we got to have use of some of the land at Queenish, and the and the buildings there in return for wow. working on the estate. And I think, I think it was maybe an overly loose affair, uh, overly loose arrangement. Uh, you know, they, they probably could have made it yeah. slightly more formal, and it would have been easier for everybody. But that's what came about. Yeah. So that's what we'd been we'd been delivering milk down at Tavul. We we had a small milk run with our excess milk from the people who lived up and down that road. 
And then when we moved yeah. up to Queenish, we set up the, the dairy proper. We had the buyer there, use of the buyer. And there's a lot wow. of dairy in there. So we, get, we ended up with, I don't know what, what it was, maybe 10 cows. And wow. we, we milked and put the milk. We started off putting it into wax cartons. And then fairly soon after that, put it into plastic bags, sealed bags. Yes, yeah. Caused consternation when we, when we delivered them because they're yeah. pretty f- weird things to hold on to. But yeah, so yeah. so they started off that there. And then we've been there for two or three years, I think. And we got the chance of buying and renting Ardriach. So we moved across there. We bought, Which is on the other side of the loch. That's yeah. right, yeah. So my, my folks bought the house there and um, bought the, the above the road part of the farm and rented the below the road part of the farm. So it was a 70 acre farm and we, we owned half of it. And the Finleys, wow. uh, Kim, Colonel Kim Finley and Audrey Finley, they, they were living in the big house down there and they were our, our landlords, our lairds. Yeah, kind of expanded that a bit. I can't remember what the largest number of cows was we had, but it's, oh, I think it's over a dozen anyway, you know. And uh, we were one of the last remaining farms in the UK to sell unpasteurized milk. Wow. Goodness um, me. And the, the reason for that was because we were the sole suppliers of fresh milk to a particular area. They couldn't get fresh milk from anywhere else. We couldn't afford to buy a pasteurization plant, of course, and there wasn't one anywhere near, so, oh, so we got away with it. And oh, no. as a result, our standards of hygiene had to be exceptionally high, obviously. So yes. we, you know, we were yeah. inspected and all that. And it was good. And then when the, the reeds moved up to Skibrua, obviously we stopped being yeah. the sole suppliers of fresh milk, so we got told we had to pasteurize or stop so instead of stopping we just sold our milk to the reeds and it went into their their pool of milk ah right their, their ocean brilliant. of milk yeah and then we i guess yeah. what happened is we bought, then bought pasteurized milk back off them and delivered that yeah. around Irving, thus still keeping our milk around right. and keeping our cows and yeah so we carried on doing dairy farming for quite a while and then eventually, this is becoming just an agricultural history, isn't it? <laughs> I did not know any of this. It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> and then at some point went over to, to Beef Suckler because, I mean, the, apart from anything else, the whole dairy thing is pretty onerous. You can't do anything other yeah, than dairy totally. farming. We're running the, yeah. the house as a guest house as well, so between those two jobs, yes, it's pretty full on. So Dad will probably be shouting at the internet when he, when he hears this, but I can't remember the reason why we went across to being beef suckler, but maybe it's because he couldn't be bothered milking anymore. Let's just say that. So we, had, so we became a beef suckler herd, <laughs> and that was all great. And oh. then, for some reason, and luckily, just before the BSE crisis hit, oh, yeah. we, went, we went into sheep. And oh. I, I don't know. Once again, I should have asked my dad a whole bunch of questions before having this chat with you, shouldn't I? <laughs> Maybe you can have one with him, get the question, the answers cleared up. So we were really lucky, I think, to have gotten out of beef and into sheep at the point that we did because we weren't struck by the BSE issue. We also, I think, got away with the, the Chernobyl issue as well because that happened whilst we were milking. Of course, yeah. But there was a, I think there was a vagary in the weather which meant that, that Mull was okay, as far as I recall. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we got into the sheep and then there's this kind of segue between sheep. Uh, Dad got a grant to plant native hardwoods on the on the land really yeah there's a there's a grant going around where you got given a grant and also and a kind of like a maintenance grant yeah. for planting and, and upkeeping native hardwoods so if you go up to the adriach farm above the road now there's a reasonably established native hardwood woodland oh. yeah i mean I, I haven't been for a number of years now but it is kind of weird seeing 
those fields that we religiously get clear of bracken and yeah. all that and preserve for cropping now covered in trees. But yeah. obviously that's when the when the Caledonian forest was about yeah. that was all there anyway until it was cleared for, for grazing. Yes, totally, yeah. And I stayed in Adrich until I went to university. <laughs> Pull back a wee bit if that's okay and go to life in Queenish because from being one of two children down the end of a long track in Tavul, you've suddenly part of the Fairbairn scene and the Dervig scene. I know that was that was crazy because it's funny because you know when what kids are like and the, the way they kind of just accept things. I don't. It doesn't. Stri- apart from obviously the nervousness of going to a new school, that's always yeah a bit of a scary thing for kids. But yeah. and. I remember being kind of devastated at leaving Tavul because yeah. it meant a lot to me, you know. Yeah. But yeah, we got so we got to Queenish, and I could cycle to school, yes. which is amazing. Yeah. Cycle to school, and uh, and me and Howie hung out loads. We 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 cycled around Fantastic. all over the place, uh, unsuccessfully built campfires. We built an amazing hut halfway along the road to to Kuen, up in the woods. Wow. And. Um, and yeah, watched Swap Shop and Howard's Room above the shop. It <laughs> um, a sport, ah. um, and um, and also there's met everybody else in the village. Well, it's Peter and Fiona and Linda and yeah, um, everybody, everybody in the village. And then of course the uh, the Morrison boys when they come up on holiday, which was an amazing cultural injection. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, looking in the other direction, there's the there's the Fairburns kids as well. Yes. Yeah. So so we palled about with with Brennan and, and Kerry essentially, because they were kind of out. Brennan was Ross's age, so. Right. Yeah, it was funny going from living far, far, far away from everywhere to suddenly being reasonably close to civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, were you part of the, the When Eight Bells Toll scene as well? Was that something that was significant for you when you were younger? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was that was purely due to Howard's influence, because I was unaware of any popular culture. Right. <laughs> we, uh, there was no there was no telly reception at Tavu, and we didn't have a telly at Queenish. In fact, we didn't get a telly until my mum won. Do you remember the the co-op reopened in Tobermory in nineteen eighty four, and mum won the Star Raffle Prize of a black and white portable telly. Fantastic! So when I was fourteen, we got our first telly. Until that point, my my telly education was from Howard's on a Saturday morning, and my grandparents uh, uh, on a Thursday evening. Right. Oh gosh. So like when he goes tall and um I know where I'm going. Yeah. What else there's Oh yeah, the needle. needle. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember when that was being shot, of course, because yeah. uh, everybody in the village had a had a job opening and closing gates, so whatever. And then I remember watching the film when it came out and Yeah. Being slightly disturbed. Yes. But there was it there was, was there was nudity in it, so it was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was I was I must have been pretty young when when I saw it, but uh, it was a good dark film. Yeah, um, it's not bad. Uh, even watching it now, it's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, he's a he's a, plays a great bad guy. I think that's yeah, what, what yeah, it's, it's, it's super. So, 
Um, at what point did you start uh, developing your, your musical interests? I've always played music, actually. I remember, because my dad had was in the house some guitars and my mum had a tin whistle and a recorder. So I remember just sitting in the house, this is down in England, uh, yeah. picking out tunes on them. And then wow. I remember we had recorder lessons in primary school down there. And I remember not being able to read the music, but being able to pick the tune up second time round. So, so I guess there was there's some kind of innate musical ability there. Um, yeah. I don't remember much in the way of music other than that down in England, but I do remember when we were in Tavoo. So I, I say, say there's no electricity, but for a certain amount of the time, there was a generator there, which yeah. gave the house, the house electricity. Yeah. And I remember my grandfather made us a hi-fi system. Yeah. Um, hi-fi and inverted commas. He dismantled a radiogram and made a separate system by putting it in orange boxes. So there was a, Brilliant. a standalone turntable, a standalone amplifier, and a single standalone speaker. Wow. And um, my parents had a, it, it turned out, had a pretty extensive record collection. My dad spent a fair bit of time in France when he was in his teens. Right. So there's quite a lot of French pop music, like François Hardy oh, and Georges Brassin and oh, uh, Chantanet. Oh, yeah. Oh. Some really great stuff. Mum had records by the Kinks and the Beatles. Oh. Um, and then Dad had also spent a bit of time in the States when he was a teenager. And so he had things like Lead Belly and such like. And yeah. So that was a brilliant education, musical education. I remember writing my first song in Queenish. Uh, sorry, in Tavu. So, yeah, I think it was seven when I f- wrote my first couple of songs down there. Do you remember them still to this day? Yeah, yeah. The first, well, the first one that I wrote came out of a dream. So, Wow. What was that about? It was... A, it was it was about dinosaurs, and it was in a minor key. Fantastic! Uh, and the next, the next one, yeah, the next one I wrote was a Christmas Carol in pretty much the same melody. And I remember singing it to the primary school teacher. And he said, "That's very interesting. It's in a minor key." <laughs> uh, That's brilliant. But yeah, I, di- I didn't, I didn't do any playing down there. I, I had, my party piece was Mull of Kintyre, but I remember being fascinated by, um, by music. There was a guy called Addie Macquarie. Yes. Yeah. Um, who played accordion. He was a total hero of mine because not only did he play accordion, he played accordion wearing dungarees with his hair slicked back, smoking a roll-up. There's, ah, there is nothing cooler. That is the clap. Um, did you not base part of your career kind of, on such yeah. a thing? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He kind of, and he'd play it leaning backwards as well. You know, he's pretty ah, casual. Um, amazing. Yeah, I thought he was super cool. I was always excited by music. And when did the, the fiddle come into it? Oh, pretty late on. I was maybe 11 Right. by the time I decided I really want to play the fiddle. No. Um, I don't know what in particular it was that made me want to do it. And who, who was teaching you at that point? Did you teach yourself? or We had an itinerant music teacher, of course, in Derby Primary. So there, I know there's an American called Mrs. Grimshaw who lived at Aris. So we got recorded lessons of her. And there must have been somebody before that, but I can't remember. And obviously, oh yeah, I, I saw a sang in the mod. So Mrs. Lloyd taught me um, phonetically, a, a Gaelic song, Lation Lurigan, which I sang in the mod. And then, um, and then I think I started, I think I started doing stuff with Colin and Christine Galbraith ah. before I took up the fiddle, I think. Colin mentions the name of a band when I was asking him for any kind of uh, good stories, and he, he mentions one, uh, Machen Jerevik. Machen Jerevik. That's up. Yeah, that was us. That was, that was essentially me, Colin, and Christine. 
Wow, and what and, did you uh, do with Mahan Yedovic? We, we sang Gaelic songs, played Tin Whistle, and I presume at some point I pretty poorly played the fiddle in it, but it must right. be pretty ropey. <laughs> but that was great. We actually we actually performed in the National Mod at Eden Court in Inverness. Right. What a terrifying experience. I can I can still remember standing on that stage looking up at all those seats all around. Yeah. We were hopelessly outclassed. There was a there's a bunch of sisters from Lewis who were always from proper. Lewis, always from the Nicholson yeah. Institute or somewhere like that. Rotters. Yeah, I mean they were, ugh, they obviously grew up singing in Gaelic anyway and Yeah. Um yeah, I, I suddenly felt um, pretty unmusical in comparison. But that was great fun. It was really good fun playing with Colin and Christine. It was a, and so we'd go and have sessions in the hutty with the granny at Penmore. Oh, lovely. She would correct, correct our Gaelic and, and teach us songs and such like. Oh, amazing. We'd have uh, ginger nut biscuits. But yeah, so that was that was the first group I was ever in, was Mahon Yerevik. So yeah, the, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was 11, I decided I wanted to play the fiddle. And um, got uh, Adam Way lent me a quarter size, or three, a three-quarter size fiddle. Which is very good of him. Hazel Brocky from Tomori gave me violin lessons. Ah, fantastic! She's what a she's lovely great. player she is. I mean, she's just amazing. Oh, she was beautiful. Yeah. yeah, amazing player. I find it pretty tough to be honest because yeah. it was lots of you know it was, it was reading music and it was playing scales. It's doing all the stuff you meant to do and practicing. And the fiddle is an atrocious instrument to learn. Yeah, it hurts. It does. It hurt. Doesn't just hurt the lugs. It hurts the elbows and the shoulder yeah. and fingers and everything. So, your fingers go green with yeah. the strings and yeah. It's... Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, I, I definitely didn't practice as much as I should have done, and but I still wanted to play the fiddle. Yeah. And uh, so I, yeah, did that for two or three years before joining a band with my dad. Was that the Cahalans by any chance? <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. Ah, superb. <laughs> yes. Uh, I've got a copy. Of, Ian gave me a copy of that. Uh, they had one. He found one. So I'm going to digitise it and uh, I'll send you a copy. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> That was excellent. But actually, before that happened, uh, the Mull Fiddlers happened. Oh, yes, I was part of them too. The Mull Fiddlers was an amazing thing. So Hamish, he started this thing up, and good for him. People like that make things happen, you know. And and as a fiddle learner, being able to sit in a bunch of, I don't know what it was, a dozen folk, playing tunes at a reasonably sedate pace, that was amazing because I could correlate the tunes that I was learning by ear with the dots on the paper, and I could presumably hide to a certain extent within the other fiddles i could i could also learn by hearing other fiddlers because there were some really nice players who was in there at that time was hazel and duncan mcgill there's duncan mcgill there's i i want to say david david lament but that might not be the right name he used to play a neil gow lament for one of his wives beautifully and i have a feeling he was from ledig Jill Gabraith on keys. <laughs> oh, she's fantastic. Fiona Jappy on double yeah, bass. Of course, yes. And my dad joined. So, so wow. me and my mum went. So my mum went as a fiddler as well. She she learned vi- viola when she was in school. Wow. So she got a fiddle and, and the pair of us went. And dad felt obviously less out. So he started picking out tunes at home on one of his guitars and thought, ah, this this isn't quite right. So he bought himself a, a mandolin and he started coming along as well. Oh, wow. And through that started um, Cahalans. Brilliant. Which was him and Ian and uh, and Hazel Brocky on fiddle. Mm-hmm. A guy called Pat Cahallan. He worked for the forestry, lived at Aris, and was an, a great kind of ragtime guitar player. Oh, lovely. And also played concertina. He had a brilliant musicality. I really, really loved playing with him. And then we had Rona Wilson mm-hmm. from Craig Muir on the flute. And we had Nigel as well, who played everything. And Nigel was incredible because he was one of these people that could play any instrument. Beautifully, you know, he's a, a great addition to the band. Wow. Nigel worked at the, at the Calmac terminal in Craig Muir. 
left the island to go to university. What did you do at university? I studied agriculture at Edinburgh University. Ah. Um, the reason I studied agriculture is because, especially at that point, the perceived wisdom was that if you could, you went to university. You know, I had the grades I could get into uni, and I couldn't think of anything to do, but because I grew up in a farm, I did agriculture. Brilliant. And was it good? Yeah, yeah. And I used to kind of joke that um, the thing that got me out of farming was studying agriculture, because I got down to Edinburgh and almost straight away joined the band. Oh, brilliant. At the end of third year, I got my degree, but I didn't stay on to do honours because I was already in a band that was gigging around and... That was far wow. more interesting to me. What was the name of the band at that point? I joined a band called the Hicktown Hobos, which was a band playing hillbilly, western swing, skiffle kind of stuff. Oh, lovely, yeah. Most of the band made a memorable trip up to Mull one summer where right. the guys stayed in Ian's caravan at Penmore. Goodness. We borrowed Fiona's bass to some songs down in the pub. The boys had a fight. One of them went through the window of the caravan. Uh, it was a... That was a pretty exciting thing, taking these total Edinburgh inner city boys up to Mull to a caravan in the woods and down to the beach and such like. They were pretty exciting. In fact, one of them came up by skateboard and hitched. So so when we when he got there a day later, basically went the wrong direction. So he was skateboarding, presumably for miles. And then eventually he hitched a lift and got a car all the way to Oban, despite the fact he turned off and started from the wrong direction. But looking back at it now, that's pretty bonkers. But yeah, that was cool. Towards the end of being in high school, I started sporting a quiff. And so when I I rocked up at Edinburgh Student Union on the alternative night, which is called the Green Banana Night, at Potterow Student Union with a quiff, and there were a bunch of uh, Edinburgh psychobillies and rockabillies trying to get signed in by students. They're like, hey, pal, pal, come here. Hey, pal, pal, sign us in, sign us in. So they kind of took me under their wing and... Uh, like musically educated me. I mean, I've, I learned a whole, whole bunch of, of psychobilly music, which looking back on it now is pretty poor music. I, I rarely get a psychobilly record out. It's not listening music, that's for sure. But also, they were all into hillbilly and rockabilly, rock and roll. A lot of them were, were into Northern Soul, but they're also into Western Swing and Bluegrass, all that kind of stuff in Cahalans, as well as playing Scottish and Irish music. We also played Bluegrass and stuff. And I played the fiddle. They were like, brilliant. One of us that plays the fiddle. So we started a band. The first outing in the band was uh, a busking session in a nearby underpass, and the only song the band knew was Mama Don't Allow. Yeah, it was one of those ones, you know, Mama Don't Allow, no fiddle playing around here, etc. And you go right through. So you could play that song for hours. We did loads and loads of busking. We'd busk down at the bottom of the mine during the fringe before it was what it is now. And we'd, you know, we'd come home with 120 quid. Amazing. And then we got couple of residencies and pubs around Edinburgh, one in Dalkeith. And it was brilliant. And we supported a couple of bands. So all the way through university, I was, in my summer holidays, I was working for Nick and George on the gang Wearily. So I'd finish term and I'd come back home and I'd work all summer on the fishing boat. I'd hang out in the Imperial Vortex in Dervig as much as I could. Fantastic. I, I was, yeah, I was kind of a an orbiter of that scene, I suppose, but partly because all the way through my teams I was either working on the farm or working on the boat so my summer we spent kind of between Gang Wearily and the Bella Croix and the, and the caravan <laughs> and playing, playing gigs with the band and so after finishing uni I came home for an especially long summer during that summer Cahallans had a gig down at Tarbot Folk Festival and at Tarbot Folk Festival we saw uh, like an iconoclastic band which was called Eat the Seats so there was Andy Thorburn there was Gary Finlayson, who previously had been in Swamp Trash, now is Sugar Nifty. There was 
Jenny Gardner, who is an incendiary fiddle player, Guy Donald Hay on drums and John Scullard on bass. And they were astounding because basically you, you know, our repertoire was playing Steve yes. Austin Band, Dan and, and then Bluegrass and stuff. And we re- replicated that as faithful as we could with our own character. But I saw this band that was playing unbelievable music. So much of it was improvised, but a lot of it was at least started on a kind of traditional theme. And it was totally amazing. Blew my mind. So yeah, got back home and not long after that, I got a message saying that guy Donald Hay was asking after you. I was like, well, not quite sure what that means. Anyway, got back down to Edinburgh and went around the car boot sale and who should be who should have a stall at the car boot sale but Jenny Gardner and John Scullard selling off a bunch of stuff. And they said, would you be interested in playing fiddle with Eat the Seats? <laughs> and I was like, no, blank, blank way. I was like, <laughs> like uh, I've... I've always done my best to say yes to anything, even if it's terrifying. And yes. that's ma- that was maybe the, one of the most terrifying things I said yes to, because Jenny's fiddle playing wow. was extraordinary. And my yeah. fiddle playing was pretty pedestrian. You know, I, I could play the fiddle, yeah. mostly in tune. And um, that's, a, but, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got invited down to, a, I guess, what was an audition. Um, but, you know, let's come down, come down to their cottage. They're... Two of them, Donald and, uh, and Andy, had a cottage down the border, so I went down there, had a few cups of coffee, and then Gary appeared from from his bed upstairs, and, um, and we started playing some tunes and kind of jamming a bit. I knew how to vamp, because obviously done that, playing the hillbilly band, and I knew how to kind yeah. of solo a bit. But anyway, halfway through playing some fairly normal stuff, Gary turned to me and said, Go mental, then! <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that was my cue to do my first ever improvisation, I guess. Anyway, uh, somehow or other, I passed. I passed the uh, audition. Um, oh, it's great fun. I, I just love. I love the freedom the fiddle gives you within those four strings. It's mad. yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, and the, the range of tones that you can get out of that instrument oh. is just amazing. So, from eat the seats, yeah. Where 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 all did you go with them? The first first tour we did was across the Highlands in winter, middle of winter. Andy was kind of the um, band leader, I suppose, to a sense. In that and Petito Francis, Inspector, and, yeah, and Tati Inspector, extraordinaire, yeah. So, um, yes. so he had this. He had the van. He had the house that we practiced in, and um, so we set off in this van. No seats in the back, obviously. You, know, you sat on amps or whatever in the back. And yeah, the yeah. first yeah, the first gig was um, Fort Augustus. I remember. I was driving down a hill that was pretty much sheet ice, and Andy said, "Everybody in the front now!" Oh God, to get, to get as balance. much weight on the wheels right. as possible. Yeah, and so we did a bunch of gigs halfway through the tour. My girlfriend at the time and Jenny drove up from Edinburgh in a little minivan to meet us. So Jenny and I both played the uh, the last few gigs, the last two or three gigs of the tour. So it was a double fiddle thing. And then the tour finished in Fort William, and. My girlfriend and I headed back. It was like, I don't know, maybe the 22nd of December or something like that, driving through Glencoe and all right. that middle of winter snow everywhere and the, and the car broke down. Oh, no. Yeah, it was pretty mental. Like, if the if we'd broken down anywhere else, we probably would have died of hypothermia because it was middle of the night. There's no insulation in a minivan. But we happened to break down no. at the hill going down into... Please don't say Jimmy Savile saved you. Please do not say. No, Jimmy no, Savile. no. Is that is the look on his? And as we as we free wheels trying to bump start this car down to Lochernhead, we passed a mini 
parked outside a house with a guy taking musical instruments out of it. So we just stopped there because we oh. thought, this is the only person we've seen for ages. This guy ended up being the music teacher in Tobermory High School, but at that point he saved our life. Good he had a caravan there which was empty. So we stayed the night in his caravan, and in the morning I got a lift to the Lixtoll garage and got a new coil for the for the mini fixer that we drove home. But if we'd broken down in that car in the middle of the night anywhere else, we probably would have died of hypothermia. Yeah. No mobile phones in those days. Not at all. Uh, yeah, so that was the first tour. And then after that, yeah, we gigged all over the place. And then, then probably the next big tour was, we kind of always did an, an autumn tour, which ended up in Shetland. So in 91, 92, I guess it's probably 92 was the first time we came to Shetland with this band Eat the Seats. And that was pretty cool. Played a, a bunch of gigs around Shetland. And, uh, yeah. it's it, As a fiddle player, it's somewhere that sort of hangs. It's like a sort of talisman that you want to head towards. And I remember, I'm a, I'm a shit fiddle player, but I remember going in uh, when I was on tour up there with a theatre show I was acting in, and I went into the lounge bar and I said, was there a session tonight? He said, no, you can, you can start one if you want. And so I picked up a fiddle and started playing. They went, hold on a minute, and we've got the better fiddle behind the bar. So I got to play the good fiddle. And I was like, oh, that was <laughs> such an honour. I was like, oh, yeah, these are, I'm in the right place. Uh, and it was just magic. I, I love Chetland. Uh, I've been two or three times and I, I'd, oh, I'd, yeah, just, you're very lucky to live there. It's an amazing place i was by, by that point i was already in love with shetland because when i was 12 i think it was tammy anderson and pity willie johnson came and played in mull oh god they played in the howard's house at the top of the hill in Derby. they played somewhere in south end i think it might even have been penny Gale school they played at like oh, wow. peculiarly tiny gigs that somebody must have set up but it was a another epiphany event because yeah it was music like I'd never heard before, right. and it was talking like I'd never heard before. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's unbelievable dialect. And what was really nice and identifiable was Pretty Willie's guitar playing was very reminiscent of Ian Morrison's guitar playing. Oh, right. And so Gosh. that like that really made sense to me. Um, and that's one of the things I love about Ian's playing is it's, it has that style to it. Mm. And so that kick-started the, the love affair with, with Shelton even before I came up here on tour yeah so eat the seats toured around for a number of years kind of nationally and internationally and then um sugar nifty started to really take off uh, which meant that not only gary was unavailable but also john scullard who's their sound engineer also became unavailable right and so that's what eventually led to the end of the band right right so after eat the seats um where where did you go what was what was what came after that after eat the seats um what was kind of left was me donald mcdougall and donald hay I know that we had uh, we had a couple of kind of drunk and fun jams in Donald's house. Uh, Don Medigo was the guitarist and thing of, of the seats. Yeah, and then we um, we got fairly heavily influenced by G Love and Special Sauce, and we started playing kind of groove stuff, oh. which was really different to to Eat the Seats. Eat the Seats was like so much about melodic uh, progression and stuff like that. Even in the later days, when it became became the seats became become slightly simpler it's still fairly complex musically and then what we started off with mystery juice was much simpler but it's all based around the groove and a lot of it was based around single chord grooves we got together with a bass player called andy powers who left shortly afterwards and then we got together with another bass player called joe pete who is an astounding musician and human being and yeah we just start we started playing. We started off as a weekly residency in Whistle Binkies in Edinburgh oh, when they first gosh. opened. Yeah, yeah. We must have started off in festival time. 
Yeah. It was definitely summertime anyway. And I remember just playing and the, the room was, at that point we were just sitting down and the room was always full of tourists and it was amazing. And, you know, there's a whole new band and every week we wrote another dozen songs and it was, um, and jettisoned another 10 songs. And Brilliant. <laughs> um, it was a really exciting time. Kind of finding, finding a musical voice, finding our, our sound and, and all yeah. that. Then Donald Drummy went away to Australia for six months. In his absence, I, I decided to, because a bunch of gigs so he came back and it was festival time and i i had like four weeks of gigs booked in edinburgh during the festival and wow. then we just kind of took off from there we just started playing and playing and refining it and we made a we did a recording and um yeah. and then we went to russia and oh, we, uh, wow how did it go um, to russia we had an amazing time in russia like we never properly got signed up to a record label but fairly on we got signed up to real world publishing Wow. The head of Real World came to see us play in Traquair Fair. Oh, yeah, in the Borders. Which was always a fairly loose affair anyway, but Joe, bass player at that point, was playing with another band as well, an indie band who I think were playing in Glasgow. Yeah. So there's an added um, excitement to that gig for us in not knowing exactly when Joe was going to arrive for our gig in Traquair with this influential guy watching. Oh, and... Um, he did arrive, and I remember at one point, halfway through the gig, he turned to me and said, I can't feel my fingers. Um, and uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> we managed to impress the, the, the real world guy. And um, so we got a publishing deal, which was cool. They looked after us pretty well. The most amazing thing that came out of that was, because real world is a world music yeah. label, essentially, people go to them where they want world music. And there, this guy from Russia who was putting on a festival in Yakutsk in Siberia, came to them and said, I want, a, I want a UK band for my bill. So they gave him two or three albums and our three-track cassette demo, and he chose us. Whoa. We stayed at his parents' house in the old Olympic Village. Oh, gosh. He had a, a Californian-plated Mercedes <laughs> that he drove us around in. And because it had Californian plates, he got stopped by the police yeah. every every time we went anywhere. Yeah. So we'd have to go in the back of a police car, they'd have a conversation about how serious it was that he didn't have it properly registered. He'd give the money, he'd come back again. You know? um, That's an expensive car to and, run. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so we, we did that, and then, that was really cool, and then we went to, the next time we went back was to this festival in Yakutsk. Oh. So that was midsummer at that point. Every trip to Russia has been crazy. We, we, for a while we went there kind of almost every year or every other year. Yeah. Our first, record was made for the Russian record label um, wow. and uh, that came out the year I think it came out the week that the Russian economy collapsed ah. so we so we outsold the Beatles two to one <laughs> ah, the Beatles done. sold one record and we sold two <laughs> so yeah we didn't That's make brilliant. nobody made a million off that record and then so with the real world connection that brings Martin Bennett to mind did you know Martin uh, around that time as well first time I met Martin was when the seats were playing Dervig Village Hall New Year's Day dance for some reason nobody had all this particular year nobody organised a New Year's Day dance quite a lot of the time we go up to to Mull for New Year, yeah. all of us descending my folks. Yeah. So yeah, so we played at the New Year's Day dance, and when we were taking a break, this this young guy came up to me and said, uh, uh, "Would you would you mind if I played some pipes in the interval?" I was like, "Nah, fine, go ahead." Oh, um, so this young guy went up on stage and played the bagpipes pretty well, <laughs> I have to say. 
So that was the first time I met him. And then after that, bumped into him on tour quite a lot when he was doing, mostly when he was doing the, uh, the stuff with just him and the, uh, and the tracks. Oh, wow. And then subsequently, some years later, I, I ended up on tour with him. There was this Glenfiddich-sponsored Distillery of Sound tour. Wow. It was a dive DG Dolphin Boy and Martin Bennett band. Wow. I was touring around with the van, with the PA, and I was doing sound for Dive and, and Dolphin Boy, and um, Martin had his own sound guy. But it was lovely hanging out with him on that tour, and um, I've got yeah. some really good memories of that. Yeah. He taught me how to peel a mango. Oh, really? The Bennett <laughs> method, as approved by Martin What point did you start working with um, sound for yourself? The bass player of Seas was a sound engineer. Right. I suppose I must have always had a, a slight technical bent, and I was always fascinated with that side of it. So I'd like I'd help him with the cabling up and the, the coiling yeah. cables at the end of the night, and then yeah. he he would if he was going off on PA jobs, he'd get me along as an extra pair of hands and and pay me a bit. So I started learning that way, and then at some point I got a job in the venue in Edinburgh, which was this rock and roll venue behind the station. Yeah, Yeah? great. So I got a job in there initially as a a lighting engineer, just because I said I could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then as a a sound engineer, so I started off doing monitors and then progressed to doing front of house. Right. And then got a job working for a PA company in Edinburgh, which is the same PA company that I'd already been working with John Scullard, you know. And then started going off on tour with bands as sound engineer. And then because you're the sound engineer, that means that you're the responsible adult a lot uh, of the time. So then you end up being the driver. Yeah. And then yeah, sometimes you end up being the tour manager as well because you're the responsible adult. So yeah, that's how I ended up right. with my career. 97 was when I started being a proper sound engineer, earning money from it. There's an amazing period when it was kind of, I suppose it was almost during that kind of Britpop year, but all, all the bands were coming through the venue on their way up just before they got massive. So we had yeah. we had Coldplay, we had um, Catatonia, we had wow. Man- uh, um, uh, Stereophonics came loads of times. Uh, loads and loads and loads. It was an um, astonishing place to work. It was brilliant. It really was a great venue. It was amazing. Yeah, even with the pillar in the middle of the stage. You've been working with Lau for the last, is it 10, 12 years? Like that? <laughs> Probably 12 years now, yeah, yeah. Gosh, so how um, did you come to meet uh, the, the Low Boys? Uh, let's see. Well, I knew them all individually. Obviously, Aye. Aiden, I knew through his band Sun Honey. I actually didn't. I didn't know Aiden from Oban. Really? Um, I, I knew him from Edinburgh, Aye. and you know the, the whole Edinburgh musical scene. You know, right, based around the Bongo Club and all and yes. all that stuff. We and, had Sarah staying with us last week. They founded the Bongo Club. Oh, lovely! Yeah. Um, and then I met Martin because I went on tour as. Liza Carthy's engineer, tour manager, and Martin Green played in her band at that point. Mm-hmm. And Chris, how did I first meet Chris? But I probably met Chris because he was the boyfriend of Sarah McFadden from Aberfeldy, rather than uh, in his own right. right. Okay. I can't think, it's difficult to think now when I first met him, but I do remember Chris and Martin coming to me to get a band photo for their duo, which is a hilarious picture, because those two don't fit in a photo together. Um, 
it's lucky with Lyle, they've got Aiden who fills the gap in between. Yes, yeah. The pair of them standing side by side. I, I was working at the book festival in Edinburgh. So they came in in one lunch hour and they stood on the stage using the stage lights. And Chris's head was out of the out of the lighting at the top. And Martin's head was out of the lighting at the bottom. I think. And <laughs> I think that that was probably around about the time that Lyle was starting because they did this kind of three duos thing. So Chris and Chris and Martin, Chris and Aiden, Martin and Aiden, Martin and. You know what I mean. I was a PA guy for the Edinburgh Fiddle Festival, whatever it's called, and Lau were playing, and I did sound for them. And then I think Martin called me the next day and said, "We'd like you to do sound for us all the time, if that's all right." And wow. So I said yes. It was brilliant. Yeah, so it was, so it was really good fun. So that takes you round round the world. And so what is what was what was it that brought you then to Shetland to settle there? Well, <laughs> um, I. I've been coming up to Shetland quite a lot because I love it. Yeah. Uh, and now uh, six years ago, I was there was a guy in, in Lerick whose album I was recording. So I was kind of coming and going. I stayed at his house whilst I was doing sound at the Folk Festival. And then kind of in return, I did a recording session in Edinburgh for his band. And they came down and then I came back up and finished the album at his house, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of one particular stay, I went to a gig in the newly opened Muriel and um, met a friend of a friend who was lovely and then and then I went off to a party, a Father Ted themed party. Ah. She was a Shetlander who was just back home for a, a few weeks and she was a, a sober driver and she drove her sister to this Father Ted themed party and came in and met me dressed as a priest drinking Buckfast and so <laughs> we sat down and chatted and that was it really. Um, Gosh. And wow. so yeah, so not very long after that, decided to move up to Shetland. Um, seemed absolutely the most sensible thing to do. Yeah, and it was. I was right. Yeah, two children in a house later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. There's obviously so so much more that we can talk about, but well, maybe just one thing, if that's okay. It's um, Al Morrison mentioned a tour that you organised um, with fiddle players about looking about the morphology of folk tunes. What was that? Yeah. Yeah. There was this halcyon days of Scottish Arts Council funding called the Tune Up Tour Funding. Oh, I remember they, that. Yeah, yeah they, they supported bands going off on tour around the Highlands and Islands. It was totally brilliant. And I, I worked on a whole load of those tours. And then I put together this tour called Going Across the Sea. I've been working with an American fiddle player called Betsy Ellis from a band called The Wilders. Over the years, we've been talking about this whole thing. Now, we played tunes together and we like, oh, that's that tune. And so it's not by any means a, an original idea, but. I put together a, t- a tour based on tunes that went from Scotland and Ireland to America and also came back again. So we had, oh, from, from over here, we had Chris Drever, Eamon Coyne from Ireland, Sarah McFadger from Orkney and me from Mull. And from America, we had Betsy Ellis from Kansas City, Missouri. And we had Caleb, Clouda and Sammy from the Falcon String Band from a kind of roundabout Portland, Oregon. Right. We we spent a few days playing tunes together. Well, we swap we sent tunes by internet, finding kind of kind of regular points of reference, and uh, and got together a set. And it was interesting because there's this whole history in Ireland of things called barn dances, which are Irish tunes which went to the states with the emigrants, got popular over there, got re-instrumentalized by whoever happened to be available, you know, pianos and saxes, whatever, pressed onto 78s, brought into Ireland. Wow. And then played, and people learning those tunes as new tunes. Goodness um, me. 
it's a, an amazing bit of filtering going on there. Yeah, totally. That's the New World Symphony all again. Right? Yeah, yeah. That was a, a really good tour. I really enjoyed it. I was, as ever, I was musically out of my depth because um, these are a bunch of you know, stellar musicians and I was kind of uh, lagging along, but it was great fun. And I don't believe what, that for a second. <laughs> what was uh, what was lovely about that tour was the tunes actually never stopped. So we'd arrive at a venue uh. and folk would start playing tunes in the dressing room. We'd walk on stage, play the set, and come off stage and carry on playing tunes. Oh. And it was it was amazing. It was a real privilege to be on tour with that bunch of folk. It's, it's uh, not often that yeah. I get to be on a stage with a, with folk like that. Yeah, and uh, and it was really well received. And yeah, I felt a, I felt a sense of satisfaction over that. It all worked well. No two ways about it. The van didn't even break down. That's that's a very positive sign. Yeah. <laughs> and one very last thing for a thing. When did you first come across uh, Gordon McLean? Oh, I think probably my first memory of Gordon McLean is driving the road roller down somewhere in the the Ross of Mull. Yeah. I do remember. I think it was. In one of the summers when I was back from uni, but usually if I, if I went out playing tunes, it was with my dad. Yeah, you know, some you know as the kind of teen tagging along, or you know as the fact we both play tunes, whatever. But yeah. this is one of the few occasions I went off playing tunes without him. Went down to Gordon's house and sat in his house, and we played. We we just kind of jammed and played tunes, and that was a that was a whole new experience for me on Mull. But my first experience of Gordon McLean was the cassette Just Mere Snot, which was one of one that he recorded himself on four track or, or multi track anyway. Right. I guess we must have been in Adriach or, or Queenish because it's a cassette, we had a cassette player by that point. Yeah. But it's got a really lovely atmosphere to it. There's uh, lots of clarinet in it, double track clarinet. Oh, lovely. I think there's fretless bass in it. Gordon's beautifully lugubrious singing on it. Oh, it's a, it's a really brilliant album. I remember some years ago digitizing my cassette and giving it to Gordon. I don't think Gordon has any, got his, got any copies of it. Um, I love it. It's a it's brilliant. It's some some great songs. And at that at that point, that just seemed like magic to be able to record an album and do all of it yourself, multi-tracking. You know, did that set a precedent in your mind? Do you think of oh, you can do this? I'd already worked out double tracking because we had a this yes. hi-fi in the house. It's an Amstrad vertical linear tracking hi-fi system. It's pretty rubbish. It's one of these ones where the record player is vertical, so you have to place the record on, screw it in, and then there's a motor which drives the needle on. It's, it's a shit idea. But Amstrad, it had a yeah. Mic- <laughs> yeah, it had a, um, a mini-jack input, microphone input, and I worked out that with my Walkman headphones, if you plugged the mini-jack in halfway, you could record on one track, one side of the stereo, and you plugged it all the way in, you could record on the other side using the headphones as a mic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. That's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. It's, it's brilliant. Oh, you're totally welcome. Cheers. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm so chuffed that we could get a chance to have that conversation. Thank you to Flurcha, Tova and Juno too for letting me have you for that time. And thank you also for letting me use the Mystery Juice tracks here and there. If you'd like to hear more of Mystery Juice, please go and visit their Bandcamp site, a link to which can be found in the notes for this episode. It's been quite a week, 
I was over in Glasgow working at the National Theatre where I was casting an eye over a production that I directed about nine years ago that's going back out on the road. It's called Cloud Man. It's for young people and we'll be touring around schools in September and October with the National Theatre of Scotland. It was conceived, built and designed by Ailey Cohen and written by herself and Lewis Hetherington, who put a new cast member into it a year or two ago, Sam, and he's taken ownership over the show in a brilliant way. He and Michaela, the wonderful technician who operates the show, are going to have a great tour, ending up in both Orkney and Shetland at the start of October. I'm really pleased with Cloudman. It's had a consistent life for nine years, mostly overseas. It's brilliant to have it back home. I've been editing this episode at my folks' house in Dunoon, from where I'm speaking now, as the Cowl Games went on. As I need to get on the road and get the ferry home to Mull, I'll put episode notes and links up in the coming days, so please excuse me if there's no notes if you're listening to this on the 1st of September 2019. Thank you to those of you who reach out to say hello, and to those of you who give me a bit more information about things. It's always brilliant to hear from you. If you want to support the podcast, you can spread the word, leave a review on whichever platform you listen to, or if you were able to or wanted to, you can make a donation via PayPal or Patreon. I do this project entirely for free, so any help would be much appreciated. It really takes quite a while to put it together. I love it, but it's... (laughs) These are long days. (laughs) As ever... Thank you so much for listening. It's an absolute privilege to share these stories with you. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Shinakade. Morantang.